Evening Hope Church, it is finished, amen? There's no better news than that, there's no better news than that. Every drop of blood that our sin was worthy of uh, being shed, every single ounce of the wrath of God that had to be absorbed for us to be forgiven, every single work of righteousness that had to be accomplished for us to be able to be declared righteous under God's standard, finished. Done. Go into your week as we finish up tonight. Go into your week with that confidence and that faith and that hope and that thankfulness to the Lord. Amen? What we're talking about tonight is the resurrection body. This is our, our final, uh, sorry, our second to last sermon through the 15th chapter of uh, Paul writing to the Corinthians. And it's, uh, this whole chapter is the biggest one in there. It's his climax. It's his uh, 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 biggest, most emphatic chapter, he started the, the, the epistle driving home the necessity of the understanding of the cross of Jesus, that, that a church that does not preach the centrality of the substitutionary death of Jesus, that he took our guilt, died under it on the cross, under the wrath of God, and rose again, all of that is encapsulated in Paul's understanding of the cross, a church that thinks that there's more dynamic ways to preach, more important things to talk about. Well, you know what? That's, that's sort of your job. You go do the evangelizing. I'll do the more respectable teachings from the, from the front. Any church that gets into that mindset is a, 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 a church that is unbiblical, according to Paul's mindset. That, that they have been To be distracted from the main thing is not coming a close second. There's no close second to preaching the cross of Jesus Christ. You miss that. You miss everything. That's not even our sermon, but make sure that's deep in your heads. Uh, and he's finishing, really, the epistle. He's going to talk about a couple of applicatory things at the end, but his big theological points have started with the church needing to refocus on the death of Jesus and now finishing with realizing the reality and implications of the resurrection of Jesus. You've been realizing, as he's uh, speaking, there's, there's some people in the Corinthian church who have not denied the resurrection of Jesus, but have denied that we, as human beings, have a future moment to hope for where our bodies come up out of the grave and we come to life just like Jesus. And Paul has just been showing in this logical, theological uh, 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 argument all throughout the chapter that, that uh, because the resurrection of humankind is one event that just takes place in two different times. It's, it's one reality, humankind rising from the dead. It's just that our first forerunner, Jesus, the first fruit, he was in 33 AD. The rest of us are at the end of the world. But to lose one is to lose the other. If Jesus didn't rise, we are still in our sins. If we don't rise, then Jesus wouldn't have risen and the whole gospel comes tumbling down. What we're looking at tonight is the very specific question about what does the human body in the resurrection form look like. And because I love you and I'm gracious, I have not tried to go line by line by line throughout 20 verses tonight because I could not figure out a way that I can get through it all. But in a classic sort of Pauline fashion, he, 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 he addresses one thing and then sort of comes back to it later as he builds a logical case. So what we're going to do is a little bit of less line by line from 29 to 49. Instead, we're going to read the whole lot, and then we're going to pull out uh, eight or nine. Uh, I've got eight here. We'll see what else I come up with on the way, though. Uh, eight points about the resurrection body that we can pull from this passage. And before we read it, I want you to 
you feel the question that is behind his, his writing this part of the chapter. Look at verse 35. Verse 35, he says, but someone will ask, and this is the, this is the detractor, the, the person at the church of Corinth who's spouting this heresy that we don't ourselves rise. They cleverly ask, well, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Sort of, this is the, 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 the end all question if you're against Paul on this matter of theology. And it's a good question. How are the dead raised? If we start thinking like the, uh, like the Sadducees did back in the, in the first century, they started asking some very, very troublesome questions that we have to actually deal with. You, you ask the question, how are the dead raised? And we could just say very simplistically, well, you know, the bodies come up. Okay, very fair, very fair. What about those bodies that have been in the ground just a little bit longer than a few years? They're not all going to come up in one piece. Oh, that they, they have, because if we can think through just the natural flow of life, they went down. Uh, but maybe they were organ donors. Right? Where's their liver coming from? That's another guy's liver now. Another guy's heart. So, so, so who gets that heart in the resurrection? Do you see the problem? Or we can start asking, what if that body goes in the ground and degrades? And we all do. And then that body, degrading, feeds into the soil, is fed on by the cattle and the birds, and then you have your steak at Lone Star. You're reading some that cycle of life. I'm not calling you cannibals, but we're, we're all eating in, in this process. Now, those cells have come to feed my body, so that's in me now, in my fat. I, I ate that, that beef, and then I go and die, or I donate a body, or when, when, if I die at sea and I disintegrate, fish eat me. Vic goes fishing, catches that fish, eats it, feeds it to his friend. Do you start seeing how the, the reality, the cycle of life, does actually beg some good questions here? How do we all become regenerate? Or maybe, maybe, you're, maybe you've been, like I have, to a family member's cremation. That's a good question. Is that all going to come flying back? Make, that's a hard puzzle piece, if we can be honest. Right? Putting all those bits back together. So the, so the Sadducees, and, and obviously whoever these Corinthian thinkers were, they, they were thinking pretty logically, uh, and, and they had some very good questions. Uh, how, how does that happen? That can't happen. That, that's just not logical and of course, you can sense that Paul agrees that they're pretty smart. Those are very good questions and very valid points if you take the creator God out of the equation. And, and, and to be smart as long as God is not in the equation is what the Bible calls a fool. And so he, his, his very next point that he makes after he quotes them is asking this, verse 36, you foolish person. You foolish person. To, to try and think how things are possible without bringing into the equation the fact that God spoke the whole lot into existence when there was nothing, he's not going to have trouble putting all the ashes, putting all, picking which organ goes in which body and recreating the gaps in the middle. I, I, love, uh, I read what Augustine said on this point. He was asking, uh, he, he was uh, assuring people that God had it covered. He said, is he who is able to make you, when you did not exist, not able to make over again what you once were? That's a good way to think about it. That's what we have to bring into the understanding. If, if we remove the miracle-working, sovereign creator God from the equation, none of the gospel is possible. So let's read the full section, and that's really what the, I've introduced the ideas that are going on in the background, and now we read chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians from verse 29 through to 49. 
Paul says this. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. But what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to shame you. But someone will ask, well, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What one sows does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps a wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star in glory. And so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are also those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. May God bless that reading to us this evening. This is the word of the living triune God. As he tells us, there's these very practical questions, though encased, as Peter says, a whole lot of confusing words from Paul. He just doesn't know how to answer straight, black and white. You give him one question, he goes off on 20 verses with all of these analogies. So that gives me some comfort that confusing or lengthy preaching is, is just fine and it's biblical. But here's Paul with these 20 verses that we're, we're going to start pulling all of the realities that we learn here out together. So number one, as we start asking the question, what is our future body or existence going to look like? Number one, it is a physical body and not merely a spiritual existence. All of the time, I, I run into Christians or, or, or people who have maybe walked away from the faith or have questions about Christianity, and, and some of their, their questions assume that there's some kind of future ethereal ghost floating around space that we're going to, and, and why is that good, and why is that desirable, and what's God doing? And, 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 and many people have a misunderstanding at this point. 
Blessed are you if you already understand this. But what we have to look forward to is a literal, physical body. Don't be confused down in verse 44 when it's talking about a natural body and a spiritual body. He's not saying that here you're physical, there you're floating, things pass through you, you have no substance, you can't eat the the lamb that God prepares for us in the feast halls of heaven. Don't think that. It's talking about natural being earthly and spiritual being the, 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 the realm of existence in heaven when the spirit and the fleshly are in perfect union. Uh, so it's not just physical and, and soulish, but rather we will have a literal physical body. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 2 through 4, Paul speaks to this, this, this same topic, but it's in a different context. He's talking about the hope that he has to come, which is why he puts up with beatings and whippings and stonings and starvations and cold and sleepless nights. The reason he puts up with all of that is, as he says here, in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we're in this tent... We groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So Paul has this way of thinking about the current and the future bodies that is not that, that we're trapped like the Greek philosophers or many people today want to think that we're trapped in this body, but one day's coming where our soul will be free to have no body. Rather, he's saying, uh, I'm in a tent. Think of the Old Testament tabernacle that went around the desert, the the, the leather cloth that would go up like a tent and they would worship there and pack it down and travel with it and set it back up. The the tabernacle did not turn into an open space. They did not graduate from tent of meeting to open space of meeting. They graduated from a tent to a more secure, solid, glorious building, the Temple of Solomon. That's what Paul's thinking. He's saying, this is a tent, and it's physical. And the problem with it is not that it's physical, but that it's a tent. And there is a future building with solid foundations, real structure to it that that fits the spirit that we have. So it's a real, future, physical body. Otherwise, he says, that's nakedness. It's spiritual nakedness to be with soul and no body. And that is exactly the state that our brothers and sisters who have already died in the faith are in at the moment. They are in heaven, in the presence of Christ. I don't know what that exactly looks like. I've watched Casper the Ghost. I don't think it'll look like that, but it's something that they're there without bodies. But that's nakedness. With us, they are groaning for the day when they put on the future glorified body. And look at verse 12 in chapter 15, going back just a little bit. He says, If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? It is the body that is raising with Christ. It's the body that Paul is arguing through this whole chapter for us in the future. It's a physical body. Let's go to number two now. As we think about the future physical body that we will inherit, What is it like? And I want to say, secondly, it's not completely different. It is not entirely unrelated to 
this body that we have now. So look with me at verse 36. Paul says, What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Which is, is getting at this, he's going to start using this imagery of, of seed going into the ground and then bringing up a kernel of, of grain or, or something like that. Now, of course, there's one element to this that he's saying, it has to die in order to grow. It has to go into the ground in order to be raised into glory. But the other relationship that's going on here is what goes into the ground is what produces the thing that is then to come. We, we don't have some kind of fairy tale understanding of the garden where you throw a, a sunflower seed in or a, a, a grain seed in and then the gnomes come at night and they take the seed away and put in the plant. We, we don't believe that. It's, it's what you sow that changes and the next stage is much more useful, much more glorious, much more evolved if we want to use that sense, but it is from the seed that is sown. So that when you think of the future body, we don't just think of, you know, will, will we be angels? No, we'll be humans. Will we be some kind of dinosaur robot mix? No, we'll, we'll be humans. It will be different, but we will be humans. And then look at verse 37 to 38. He says, what you sow is not the body that is to be. You don't take a, a blooming flower and shove it in the ground and hope to get a seed you do it the other way around. The body that goes down is not exactly what we will receive back. We're going to receive back something that is better. What you sow is not the body that is to be, but a, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed, its own body. So you can imagine the Maybe you've watched one of those time-lapse videos of, of seeing a, a seed go under the ground and then, and then quickly evolve into this beautiful uh, uh, flourishing flower with all of these colors and amazing centers. Or, or, or maybe it's, it's the grain that goes down and grows up and produces the ear and then the, the head that is then, then harvested. That, that, that's what you need to think about our bodies. We are we're, we're, we're the capstone of all of creation. We are the highest, most Godly created beings, humans are. We bear his image in, in so many factors of our being. And yet, compared to the resurrection body that we will receive, we are just a bare kernel that is yet to grow and develop into all that God has for it. There is something future that is, yes, like this body, but, but so much more. But it's not unrelated to or disconnected from this body. This is the seed that will become greater. And there's one other reality of this imagery that he's using is that if you were to find a kernel or find a seed, there's no way, there's no human way. This is part of the, the mystery, the, the divine love of creativity that God has woven into the world. There is absolutely no way of picking up a seed of a flower you've never seen before and being able to get even close to guessing what it's going to look like. It's just a tiny little seed that looks exactly like the last hundred little seeds that you looked at. But give it three weeks, it's in the ground, and it's blooming in colors entirely different from the others. And, and so there's no way of knowing what a seed or a grain is going to look like unless you've seen a sample of it. And that we have in Christ. 
We haven't ever, until Jesus rose, we never saw a, a, a human example or prototype or stereotype or, 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 or anything that would tell us what the future human body will look like. But when Jesus rose, he gave us a glimpse. He showed us what we will be like. And therefore, our, our third point that we can go to is that this amazingly changed body, which grows out of or develops from what we currently have, it is like Christ. Because as verse 20 said, he is our first fruit. We're not from a different style of fruit. We don't, we don't become something less than or different to Jesus' physical body. We are not God in flesh, but Jesus is not God in some other flesh. He didn't become a, a halfway point between humanity and God. He became truly God and truly human. So that touching his human side, we can study what he did, how he walked, what he was like, and we can acknowledge and come to an understanding of what our future body should be like and will be like. And this is, this is extremely important as we think worldview. When Paul gets into topics like this, it's helpful to just sort of pause and compare it to every other competing worldview out there. And, and I try and do that for us so that we can realize this isn't just a bunch of truth that fits nicely into whatever worldview you happen to have or the world happens to put forwards. What Christianity is, is a, a boulder that comes out of the sky and lands on whatever worldview you've got and needs to make room for all of it. It needs to smatter and destroy and splatter any worldview that, 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 and any opinion raised up against the knowledge of God. So let's think how this starts affecting the resurrection of Jesus as our future promise of what we'll be like. How does this affect how we, we think worldview-wise? You know, every, every worldview, I could just as easily say every religion, because every worldview is ultimately a religion with, with some kind of sacred text, some kind of priesthood, some kind of prophet, some kind of good news, some kind of guilt that they give to you. Let, let's just stick with the word worldview until we, we, we can... Uh, uh, work more on, on all those details later. But, but every worldview promises its people, promises to people it's being taught to some kind of utopian future. Every worldview does it. You can think of, of, of communism, which, which comes out to, to uh, Eastern Europe or wherever it goes, and its promise is, if you do these things, there will become a great uh, 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 utopian future of equality, of outcome for everybody, Everyone will have uh, the ability to produce according to his ability and receive according to his need. No one will be jealous. There won't be any angry, selfish capitalists. Everyone will be equal and happy and what? That, that, that's the utopia that they promise for people to buy into that worldview. Or we can take maybe people who today postulate about the great reset, that you'll own nothing, you'll have nothing of your own, but you'll be happy, and, and the oligarchy will own it all and, and feed the masses, and you'll be happy little sheep. Or we can think of atheism as a religion, as a worldview that, that tells people that if, if we can just eradicate religion, if everybody was an atheist, I was listening just to a, a book this week by, uh, 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 he's, he's an atheist, I'll tell you that, I can't remember his name, uh, and, and he, was, he was saying that if we could eradicate religion, you'd eradicate war. There'd be no Irish versus Catholic Protestant uh, wars, there'd be no Islam versus others, there'd be no Christian medieval ages against Muslims, there'd just be no war if we could eradicate Religion. Does that guy read the same history books I read? 
no war, if you could eradicate religion, as if people aren't fighting over land and possessions and money and women anyway. But anyway, that's, that's the promise. If we can all be atheists, there'll be a utopian future. We have the same thing in, in modernism, which promised if we can just all get educated enough, the world will lift itself out of its sin and war and evil. And that was the, the promise of the 20th century, which became the bloodiest century in history. We've received the same promises through um, a, a science-ism. You know, people just say, if we can just uh, throw away superstition, we just become scientific enough and just brute facts, raw data, if everybody just bent the knee to the science all around the world, we would have a, a better world. Science would be perfect. Medical uh, advances would flourish. And, and, and ethics, we don't need to talk about ethics and the fact that, of course, people who do that always end up experimenting on other human beings without some kind of moralistic absolute guard, those sorts of things. Let's ignore that. Or, or we can look again at, at the, the, the governmental uh, worship, state worship, or, or let's just call it government. As the government tells its people, right, what's their promises that get them a vote in the election? Vote me in. I promise I'll save you from whatever X, Y, Z thing is on your mind the most. Vote us in. We'll save you from COVID. Vote us in. We'll save you from the other party, the, the other worldview, the coming war, the other people. Maybe we can even look in history and see the, the racist ones that vote us in and we'll keep Australia white. Whatever the promises are, they promise something grand and glorious in order to get you to buy in. France did this. In its great revolution, it became absolutely atheistic and absolutely free what they thought from, from oppressive government. And what came next? The guy who was leading the charge against the government became set up, not as government, just as sort of a leader among equals. And what did they do? Made a statue and worshipped the guy as the son of the gods. Killed many, any that opposed him. That, this, is, this is what happens. Any worldview worth its salt knows that people feed on hope. You can offer people hope, they will do anything. That was Hitler's story offered the people, the, the glory of the motherland, they were willing to silence all of their morals, silence those parts of Scripture that, that were calling the Christians to stand up for the oppressed. They, they, they put that out because Hitler had promises and then he had power and then he had absolute destruction of, of any of his enemies. So, so what you need to realize is what Paul's doing is setting up the reality that we're not pretending we're entirely different. Christianity offers... Not a utopia, but a bright future. Well, let's call that the new heavens and the new earth. What everybody else tries to promise, Jesus actually promises. And here's the one key difference. We're the only people with a first fruit. No other promise to the human race of future finality and utopian distant future and solving of all of our problems. Nobody else has a first fruit that actually shows it can be done, right? You say this to your, your socialist, communistic mate's name, one time this ever went well, what do they say? No, no, wait, wait it just hasn't been done properly yet, right? The, the pride of that, we'll do it, right? We're free from original sin, we'll get it right, and then there would be oppression and, and governmental abuse and killing and starving of its people, it's great. Only, and, and that applies to every worldview, except Christianity. We have a first fruit. We have that future, new heavens and new earth, 
sealed for us. It's coming, and Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the taste of the glory to come. And our bodies are going to look just like his. So first John chapter 3, John says the same thing as Paul. He says, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Right? We're not exactly certain what we will look like in every regard, but we know this, that when he appears, we shall be like him because we'll see him as he is. That moment of seeing Christ is the moment of the resurrection at his return. We'll be like him. If That's where we start. Whatever else we're like, we're like him. We're like him. He is our first fruit. And, and if we just haven't stepped on enough uh, uh, social toes, let, let's just also go ahead and say that if we're like Jesus, then we will be eternally gendered. Men in this world, even those who have denied God's good creation through an ideology of transgenderism, women in this world, even those who hate their own sex and have denied it through transgenderism or some kind of absolutist feminist ideology, everybody is, if we are Christians, recreated into those two genders again. But this has to be... This has to be the end point, the logical conclusion of, of any of those pastors that want to stand up and wave a rainbow flag and say, there's more than two genders. Sure, you are what you feel you are. They have to believe that God is going to honor what that person thinks they are and recreate them in heaven, and there'll just be a large spectrum of recreated genders, or let's not use that word. That, that's what they have to believe. But we saw Jesus go into the ground a man, and Jesus resurrect as a man. So that in heaven, we will all be not just, let me say this, many famine, like left-wing liberal feminists who just hate all the, they'll even call God she because they don't like all the, the they call it her story, not his story. They get offended at all of that. Um, uh, the, the, the logical conclusion to that, this, this ultra-egalitarian view of Scripture, is that, is that Jesus should not have risen a man. He should have risen androgynous. Because they'll make the case that gender is sort of just a necessary evil for this lifetime. Because of the fall and because of how things had to work, you know, there's genders and there's differences and guys are stronger and women are smarter and, you know, put in all of the differences that there are. But in, if everything was good, you know, we believe Galatians, right? In Christ, there is no male or female. If that is true, in the sense they mean it, that there's no gender distinctions in God's design, then surely in the resurrection, we will have no male or female. But this is not just for procreation, and we won't be making babies in heaven. We'll still be male and female. Jesus should have risen an androgynous, neither male nor female, sort of right in, and that's, that's what we'll all be as well. But friends, Jesus rose a man. We, I don't think that we're going to raise with exactly the same, let's keep it PG at least, exactly the same anatomy that we have now. Simply, there won't be recreation. We won't be making babies. But mark this, I think that our male and female distinctions will be even bigger. And through those, we will be even more able to glorify God through his designed purposes of male and female. Imagine a world where there are no, and this, this is good news, no gender-confused, struggling individual. A world where there is no 
chauvinistic men using strength for oppression. And of course, no feminists that despise what God has made, but rather rejoice every one of us in the created order that he has. We will raise like Jesus, we'll be gendered, we'll be humans. Let's look at verse 48 and 49 where, where Paul repeats this. That as we are like, like Adam in this world, we'll be like Jesus in the world to come. Verse 48. As was the man of dust, you remember Adam was made from dust, so also are those of the dust, you and me, as humans. And as is the man of heaven, Jesus, so also are those who are of heaven. We will be like Jesus. That is our glorious privilege as his brothers and sisters. Number four, being like Christ, we also see that each body has a, each body is made for its habitat. So that now we've looked at it's going to be a physical body. It will be related to this body. It will be like Christ's body. And fourthly, it's going to be glorified, upgraded, renovated. That's the body we've got. So look at verse 39. Paul says this. For not all flesh is the same. There's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There's the glory of the, uh, uh, the earth, heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind. The glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory for the sun, one for the moon, one for the stars, because all stars differ in glory. What he's getting at is this. The bodies of things are created in a way so that they're fitting for their dwelling. The reason God didn't make fish with wings is because fish don't live in the air. The reason God didn't make birds with bodies which have gills is because those bodies don't dwell in the water. So this is basic, right? We're not getting too high and mighty on theology right here. Paul's just showing the, the, the way that creation differs is by God's design. Things have been given bodies that fit the place they're living. That's why the moon is a fireless, cold dust rock, because it's quite close to us. It's just a few hundred thousand kilometers away. Whereas the sun, a blazing ball of gaseous fire, is millions of kilometers away. If the sun was created by God to be much closer, its body would be different. If we were created to be on another planet, our body would be different. Paul's saying that the the created body fits the place God is putting it. And so, if we're going to dwell in a world that is recreated in all of its fullness and glory, what must our bodies look like? We will receive bodies. Right now, we've received bodies fit for this earth. And in the coming world, we will receive bodies fit for the glory of the new heavens and the new earth. That's his point. Do you see the logic there? That's what he's saying. There's one kind of glory here. There's another up there. But then we see in verse 22 through, sorry, 42 through 44, we see four things that he says. And we'll go through them pretty quickly. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. He's making the connection there. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. So our bodies, one element of the glorified part of it, one element of the upgrade is that we're not sick and decaying. 
like Jesus in his new life, we are, as Romans 6 verse 9 says, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Therefore, because we're like Christ, we've already made that point, we will have no decay, no perishability about our bodies because death will have no grip on us. Death will be dead. There's no death anymore. There can't be any progressive death anymore. The decayed body is a memory that we have forgotten about. We only remember it in as much as we glorify God for our healing from it. There's no longer any pain, sickness, decaying, or mortality. What good news that is for the sick and, and, and the mentally ill and, and the, the, those racked with all kinds of bodily or chemical or, or, or biological, genetic, whatever it is, any kind of bodily ailment that you have, what good news that is. As Paul echoes in verse 53, next week's text, he says, this perishable body must put on the Im imperishable. The mortal must put on immortality. So one element of the upgrade is that it's not perishable. Number two is that there's no more shame. He then goes on to say, it's, this body is sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. This reality of honor and glory is really getting to the reality of shame, that shame for sin. Revelation verse 21, chapter 21, verse 8, sorry, says this, speaking of the new heaven and the new earth. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Nothing unclean, we're told, enters into the new heavens and the new earth, meaning that none of those things are true of us. If we were any of those things, we do not come in. And if any of those things, if we were afraid of any of those things becoming true about us, immorality, murderer, faithless, a liar. Do you resonate with any of that in this life? If it's true of you here, you can rejoice in the fact that though now you're cleansed from it because of Jesus, soon you will be freed from any paining conscience of it because of the new creation. No dishonor, no shame, no embarrassment, not, not even an ounce of reluctance to approach the throne of the glorious King Jesus. We know how we stand with him and therefore that day is confident. Like, like we sing when we say, on that day when free from sinning, I will see thy lovely face. Clothed then in blood-washed linen, then I'll sing your sovereign grace. No reluctance to approach the throne. And then thirdly, he talks about weakness, right? It says here, it's sown in weakness, raised in power. This is getting to the, the weakness or the frailty in temptation. That, that we're, we're always falling and buckling our knees and losing grip on holiness. We're always giving in to temptation in this life. But in that life, not only will there be no temptation, how good is that? There will be no temptation, but even if there was, it wouldn't be able to overtake anybody. We are raised into power. 
into power. And then fourthly, the fourth element of this upgrade is that not, all, not the same limits to the time-space sphere occur. So verse 44 says, it's raised a natural body, sorry, it's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. And then he goes on this language of the natural Adam and the life-giving spiritual Jesus. So we need to start asking, in what ways are we no longer bound to the space-time continuum? Because there'll still be time, there'll still be space, but we won't be as bound. And we see in the resurrected Jesus that his glorified body did some things that I would make the argument we're going to be able to do, and this is just a foretaste of, of some of the, the unbuckling, the loosening of the seatbelts, let's say that. The seatbelts of the space-time continuum are just a little bit looser in the new heaven and the new earth. In Luke 24 and John 20, we see that Jesus looked like a human. So there you go, that, 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 we've covered that, we'll be human. He also ate food in Luke verse 24, and of course we're told there's a marriage supper in heaven, that's going to be awesome. He also showed us that he was, he was recognizable as Jesus, people saw him and knew that it was Jesus, so he looked the same. And he had a touchable physical body with scars in Luke verse 24. However, there are some things of difference. We saw that he was also at some times able not to be recognized. Now, was that because he was able to, to change how he was appearing to different people? Was it because they, it took a little longer for them to realize it was Jesus because he looked just that much different? We're not sure. But there's some difference between this body and the body coming. We see in Luke verse 24 that he passed through closed doors. Doors were closed, room was locked, and there Jesus comes among them. There's going to be some kind of unbuckling of the seats of the time-space continuum. Also, we see that in Luke verse, uh, chapter 24 that he was with them, and then in a moment he disappeared. Call it teleportation, call it invisibility, I don't know. But he did it, I think we'll be able to have some kind of taste of that. We need to, uh, we will uh, look like him in some ways and in, in a few other ways. And it, I, I think that as we look at all this, we should lean on the we'll be like him rather than leaning on the we'll be unlike him. So all of that that we see there, I think, will be of the human kind, of all of us. We can keep on going. We see that, as we have said earlier, the body is made for the dwelling it has. We talked about this, the sun, the moon, the fish, the birds, they are given a body fit for their dwelling. In heaven, in the new heaven and the new earth, we will be made in such a way that our capacities of our body are able to take in the newly upgraded creation. So that as humans on this earth, built for this earth, we have immune systems. We have a fight or flight component to our adrenal system. We have a liver that, that filters out toxins, a kidney that, that, that purifies our blood. In heaven, we will be created for the world we will be in, which will be unfallen and entirely upgraded. We won't need immune systems. I don't know what differences this is going to make to the look or the shape or the, the feel of the human body, but we can start postulating and at least, at least thinking about how different it's going to be. We won't have body parts that need to filter out germs or viruses or toxins. 
We won't have a, 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 a danger component to our brains of fight or flight. There will be no danger. We won't have uh, a coagulant agent in our blood because nothing will need to be healed and scabbed over. We won't have tear ducts because Revelation tells us there will be no tears. There will be much different that we will be without, but also there will be things that we will have in a manner we can now only imagine. We look up at the sky and maybe you've been out on a farm, maybe you've gone camping and you catch a glimpse of a cloudless night and the Milky Way in all of its glory is shining in front of you. And maybe you're like me and you just wish you could, you could zoom in and look at it all. Maybe like me, you dreamt of being an astronaut when you were a kid and I still get told I'm a space cadet, so I'm half there. But, but you want to go to space. You love those sci-fi movies to just imagine the glories of the galaxies. If God gave us eyes and ears and noses and taste buds to taste the glory of this world, with a more glorious, upgraded world to come, we will have an increased capacity to feel, to hear the songs of the birds and the songs of the saints. See the colors. Will there be new colors? I think so. It's just going to be upgraded in every sense. The taste of the food and our ability to taste it upgraded. Everything about the new world will be fitting for our body. God will make sure that the glories he makes will not be wasted by having people who can't fathom and understand and enjoy it. We will be human, but in a way we cannot now imagine because of our lack of experience. Number five, the future body that we get, the future body that we get will be a fitting home for our new spirit. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And in verse 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and in verse 4, Paul says this. While we are still in this tent, back to that tent analogy from before, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed and, you know, throwing off this tent. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. Let me say, more fittingly, more suitably clothed, he's saying, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He doesn't want the mortal to become nothing. He wants the mortal flesh to become a life-living, immortal, imperishable thing. Verse 5, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. I'm going to read, don't turn there, but I'm going to read verse 8 of Romans so that you can see the, uh, uh, par uh, the parallel. He says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In this hope, we were saved. So what Paul's getting at here is if we start thinking of the resurrection body, one way to think about its, its glory is that we're not going to groan under the weight and the fallenness of the body we're in anymore. This natural body you have is fallen and made for the fallen world. 
And in God's order of creation, he doesn't give you your body first, but your recreated spirit first. Which, good as the spirit body component now is, there's a conflict. There's things my spirit wants to be able to do. I want to be able to praise God with a higher capacity of voice and a better ability to form sermons and a deeper ability to feel for brothers and sisters and a greater ability to serve, but I just can't do it. And so Paul says that's the groaning. As the gears are grinding and the stretching is going on and we reach capacity so that the spirit now that we have just doesn't fit in this body anymore. Maybe you've gone back like me to try and wear some of your pre-COVID clothes and it, there's, you hear the groaning of the, the joins and the sewed stitches. They, they pop, they rip, they tear, they groan. I don't fit anymore. I, I've been upgraded. I don't fit in those old pants anymore. That's your body and spirit. The new regenerated spirit in this body just can't feel at home. It's a bad sign, Christian, when you feel perfectly at home in this body and this world. You're made for one to come. And when it happens, you will be set free, not from a body, but from a body that doesn't fit anymore. And everything you want to do, can. You'll never have an immoral desire. God can literally say to you, do whatever you want and everything you feel like. Don't worry. You won't have a single feeling or desire that is not ordered perfectly. So that body will finally be a home for our spirit. Verse 6, I'm going to go through this quickly, and this is the most confusing part. We got Q&A for a reason. Verse 29, this is going to show us that our future body informs our life right here. Our future body and what we believe to come informs your current lived experience. Ideas have consequences. Hopes have effects on our life. So, verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean if, by being baptized on behalf of the dead? What? I don't know. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Does that make sense? Good argument from Paul. Almost nobody knows for certain what he means here. Most likely, what he's saying is... I'm not affirming it. I don't think it's good. It's wrong. It, it, I'm not approving of it. But I hear that in Corinth, there are some religions who, or maybe even some of the left-wing Christians who are getting baptized for the sake of dead people. And he's not saying that's a good thing, but he's simply saying they wouldn't do that if they didn't, like everyone else, have the intrinsic knowledge that there is a future life. Everybody knows there's a future world to come, so even the wrong people act out in accordance with that and baptize people on behalf of dead people because God has put eternity on every man's heart. It's just saying everybody acts according to what they're thinking. Even the guys who we don't agree with baptizing for the sake of dead, we all know that the dead will be raised in the future, sort of his uh, backhanded uh, argument. Then we see how it affects Paul's life. So that's what those guys do. But how does our future resurrection affect my life? Verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers. I'm not just in danger every hour. But let me protest by my pride in you as a church. 
as my children who came about by my spiritual anguish in spiritual childbirth for you, I die every day. To Paul, if I'm getting resurrected and the resurrection power is available every day, then I'm freed up to die every day, to to serve so strenuously, to put myself in so much risk that if every day God has to bring me back from the brink of death, he will do it. And the day he doesn't want to, I'll see him and that's fine with me. So he's saying every day I'm I'm dying. I'm, I'm living this continual death life pattern. But if that's not true, If if the resurrection is not coming, I'm wasting my time. He says here, uh, uh, if the dead are not raised, let's just eat, drink, and then die tomorrow. That's how you live. He uses this uh, analogy of saying in Ephesus, where, where some of the fiercest spiritual, occultic, pagan opposition came against Paul, He converted so many pagans, the guys who used to sell the metal idols to the pagans got really upset because they got put out of a job and made a riot and threw in front of the the proconsul to get judged. And they they started chanting this pagan chant for two hours in the middle of the city, right? Yes, they had Black Lives Matter style marches long ago that religious spirits have always been around. And anyway, Paul says, I did that, and I'm going to call that battling beasts. I fought with spiritual wild beasts because I believe I'm going to rise again. If the future world is not happening, I'm not doing that. And then he says, don't be deceived. If you're hanging out, listening to, engaging with and calling a brother, somebody who is denying the central tenets of the faith, you cannot pretend that you are some kind of robot Christian, some kind of untouchable, unruinable Christian that you won't get affected by their immorality or their heresy. He says, wake up. Do not go on sinning. Some of you have no knowledge of God, and I'm saying this intentionally to shame you into repentance. He says, don't be received. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up. And so all of these three elements that he said, that baptizing the dead, me dying every day, and, and living moral lives free from heretics, that's all because what we believe is coming affects how we live right now. If you don't believe in a future world, this is all you got, soak it up. If you do believe in a world, then sow the seeds to the ground that it may be raised immortal. And lastly, we can see here that this is only... This resurrection body is only for those in Christ, not those outside of Christ. Verse 48 and 49, we read earlier, says that, or verse 49, let me just read that. Just as we bore the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. We, us Christians, will bear his image. Verse 48 says, all those of the dust look like the man from the dust, Adam, And all those of heaven will look like the man from heaven. So that only those who are in Jesus Christ have all of this to look forward to. Those who can hope for a future resurrection because you look back on the resurrection of Jesus. Only those who have confidence that God's going to recreate your body because he has no wrath for you. 
He has no punishment for you. He has no anger towards you. It will be the delight of his heart to make you into a being that can come into his full, glorious presence. If you've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, you can hope with that with assurance. But it's only for those who have repented from sin, turned away from their life of of self-lordship, of of believing what I want to believe, living how I want to live, complete human autonomy over myself. I call sin what I want to call sin. I am what I want to say I am. That that person who, who speaks that way has not bent the knee and received the salvation of Jesus Christ. That person, if that's you, that part of you needs to die. Jesus calls us to a, a, a death of self so that he can give life. Come to the cross where Jesus died and say, I want my sinful flesh, I want my sinful nature to die there with Jesus. And if you do that, God gives to you spiritual life, repentance, faith, new life, adoption, righteousness before him. Salvation is for those who turn from their own doing, turn from their own sin and trust solely on Jesus. And if we fail to do that, we are humans born in Adam and never repent and become those born in Christ, then we also, in the resurrection of the dead, will be raised. And just like Christians, you will be given a body fit for the dwelling you will have. Jesus says in John 5 that there is a resurrection unto life and a resurrection unto death. Just as Jesus in Hebrews 10 says that, says that I received a body so that I could come and die and we will receive a body so that we can go into his glorious presence and, and not be blown to bits, the unrepentant will receive a body that can be in hell and never die so that it can burn and never be consumed, so that it can be punished and never pass out of existence. That's what God will do. He will seal into a punishable state of eternity all those who do not turn and repent. So I implore you, be those who have a future body in God's presence coming. Be those who have been cleansed by Jesus so that not an ounce of God's wrath is left for you. The good news of the future body is right now the good news of the dead and risen Jesus Christ. Believe it for your soul's salvation. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you. We thank you so much for the promise of a future body. And it can seem like just a, a tangential, almost irrelevant part of theology that maybe we tack on the end of only the most elongated gospel presentation. But God, we realize that in Paul's mind, If we have Christ's mind by the Holy Spirit, it becomes so central to your purposes for us in the gospel. You will leave no part of our life unrecreated. Every part of what we are, you will make better, upgrade and renovate. But Lord, I pray for the application of that truth to our lives. I pray for the the hurting saint who who is plagued with continual guilt in their conscience and and pain over past sins and and a lack of hope looking forward because they know their weakness and know how much of a failure they've been before. I pray, God, that you would give them hope, a joyful trust that there is a future filled with strength, no dishonor, glory, imperishability. 
I pray, Lord, that you apply that to our heart. I pray also that you would, you would remind us, as Paul said, that, that, that those who believe in the life to come will use this life in sowing seeds into the earth. That we will preach the gospel so that people can believe. We will sacrifice time, effort, money, so that the gospel can be propagated and spread. We will sacrifice of sinful desires and die to ourselves every day and die to the world every day if it means that we can be closer to you, more holy in our life. Lord, bring us to the heart that Paul had, which will sacrifice sleep and sacrifice comforts and sacrifice extra cushy parts of our life if it means that we can have extra time with you in the word. Extra time sowing into the kingdom of God. Extra time serving our beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus. I pray that you would make us a people, not just that believes in the resurrection, but lives out the reality of the resurrection. Because Jesus is glorious and worthy of our praise. We praise all of this in his name. And everybody said, Amen.